Hi, friends. Welcome to season two of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Kajin Jeffrey Kwan. Jeffrey is an elder in the California Nevada Annual Conference. He's a first generation Chinese Malaysian American who has served at multiple levels of the UMC. He's currently the President Emeritus and Professor of Hebrew Bible at Claremont School of Theology. Y'all, I walked away from this interview feeling truly edified by Jeffrey's story and perspective. He has wisdom that is the result of deep theological reflection over many years. And this wisdom is informed by his journey of coming to faith and experiencing his call outside the US, but also the impact of worshiping in predominantly white spaces within this country. Jeffrey's hope for the UMC is not blind to our need to be honest about our past. And it assumes that we must be realistic about the work ahead. This was a rich interview, but not a heavy one. And I think you'll be nourished by it. So go ahead, grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really great interview with Jeffrey Kwan. Jeffrey Kwan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing well, Derek. I am excited uh, to hear more of your story and uh, to really get a sense of just how you became a United Methodist Christian, God's prevenient grace acting in your life, bringing you into our church. But I imagine for you, there's probably some steps before that that might be interesting to hear as well. So you you, you tell me where we're starting in the story of... Uh, Jeffrey Kwan. Thank you, Derek. I hope that you have a lot of time given to me just to tell my story. I am here for it. That's exactly what we're doing. Yes. Uh, I trace my, my, my Christian ancestry back to, back to Malaysia. Uh, uh, first and foremost, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a first generation Asian American. Um, came to the U.S. in 1984, January of 1984, to pursue graduate theological education. Uh, my 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 Christian background actually begins with my maternal grandparents. Uh, my a lot of uh, my my family members. Uh, their background is is Chinese religiosity and Buddhism. But my grandfather and my grandmother became Christians probably in the 19, 1940s. And uh, from uh, in my own background, there is a very famous Chinese evangelist by the name of John Song, John Song, uh, very brilliant intellectual, came to the United States 
to pursue a PhD in chemistry. And on his way back, he had a conversion experience. And so, uh, as, the, as the, the legend goes, uh, it was on, on, on the uh, ship back to, to China, he threw away his diploma because, because of his conversion, he mm. decided that he wanted to preach the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so he went home and, and started preaching the gospel. Mm. But he, he is from the same area that my, my family ancestry is from, from Putian. Mm -hmm. And that area in China was evangelized by the Methodists. The Methodists were there in the in the eighteen fifties, uh, in, oh, in the eighteen wow. hundreds, mm -hmm. and so John Song, because he was in the area, uh, he became Methodist and also served a, a a local church, preached in a local church, as he as he as he did he did his evangelistic work in many different parts in China and all over Asia. So he, he came in the 19, he went in the 1940s to Malaysia and it, it was in one of his evangelistic uh, me, uh, meetings that my grandparents became Christian. Wow. And, and so my mother as a young child, became a Christian together with the, uh, with, with the family. Hmm. So when she married my father, my father was not a Christian. My father came from a, a, a Chinese Buddhist, uh, Chinese religiosity Buddhist background. Mm -hmm. But the agreement between the, the two sides of the family is that my mother would not be forced to to uh, to convert back to to Chinese religiosity. She would be allowed to remain a Christian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, my my father was very supportive of my 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 mother's faith. And from from young, we were mandated. We were required to go to church, to go to Sunday school. It was, there's no option. <laughs> and my father would not allow us to skip church, even though he did not go to church until at, at, at a later part of his own life. That sounds a lot like my upbringing, Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I was, I was born and raised a Methodist in Malaysia. Wow and uh, was very active in the church. I was, uh, uh, I was a, a leader in the uh, youth fellowship. And in my teens, I decided the church is a very evangelical church that I grew up with. So we will have retreats, we will have uh, have. Uh, have prayer, uh, all night prayer, and and the, all all that is involved in a very conservative evangelical church. 
so I received my my call to 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 ordain ministry when I was 16 17 years old hmm. and at 17 after high school I went to Singapore to study theology and five years of uh, of of theological studies at the undergraduate level I graduated went back to Malaysia served a local church as an associate pastor and after three and a half years decided to come to to the United States my first experience in the United States was at Southern Methodist University mm -hmm. in Dallas Texas and so we we went to we went to Highland Park which mm. is on the campus mm -hmm. so worship there for uh, for a, a period of time, but, but never really got to know people. It's, it's a wealthy, big church. Ultimately, no, no, nobody knew us. We were there just for worship. And a wealthy white church. So it was very, very difficult to, to engage with the uh, ministry there. Uh, in Atlanta, uh, we went to a Methodist church for a period of time and uh, eventually in, in the latter part of my life, uh, my wife and I went to a, a, a Presbyterian church, a PCUSA church for, for about two years. We actually became Presbyterians for two years. Oh, wow. So I was not a Methodist for two years. Mm. And uh, then my the, the journey took me to to Pacific School of Religion, where I started teaching. It was really in Berkeley that uh, the Chinese Community Church in Oakland, when the pastor heard that I, I'm, I'm at uh, PSR teaching, immediately they came, met with me, and recruited me. So we got very active in the Chinese church. Chinese United Methodist Church uh, since 1991. And mm. I was very active there. I uh, served on committees. I taught Sunday school and uh, preached. And there were a, a couple of years when the church was without a, an English pastor appointed to the church. I literally served as their, their pastor de jure. Wow. So, and uh, there's a senior pastor, but I was functioning there in the in English ministry with them. Okay. And it was when I was teaching as a United Methodist that I decided that I need to return to my ordination process. I had, I had dropped my ordination process when I left Malaysia. And Bishop Melvin Talbot, who had just passed away, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was very critical in my life as a United Methodist clergy. Hmm. And he was the one that affirmed my, my, continue to affirm my call, especially my call to theological education. Mm -hmm. So my journey to United Methodism, there's so many steps that led the way to to my identity as a United Methodist clergy today and uh, 
the privilege of serving the, the, the church in so, so many different ways. Wow. Jeffrey, there are so many pieces that I kind of want to drop in on of all that you just shared. And I know we've got a lot more ground to cover, but talk to me about these predominantly white United Methodist churches that you and your family attended, but my sense is you weren't really invited in. Am I speaking too strongly here? Not, not strongly, because in many ways that, that 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 was our experience, particularly in Dallas as well as in uh, in in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a reason why we ended up in Atlanta at a Presbyterian church. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in Dallas. In Dallas, we were in Dallas for two and a half years. And uh, eventually in Dallas, my, 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 my family did not so much uh, at, at the later point because our, our daughter was very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, did not, uh, we, we would just go, go to worship in the morning. But then I, I got to know a, a clergy person from, uh, from Africa who had married a Malaysian Chinese and had a congregation, non-denominational congregation. I became more active with, the, with, with his church, which is multicultural. And every Sunday in the afternoon, I will go to his church. I would participate and uh, he would often invite me to lead the congregation of prayer. And that's how I got uh, quite active in his congregation. Whereas in the, in, in, in the, the, uh, the, the upper class white church, no, nobody, no pastor, even make a pastoral call to us. It was strange for me as a clergy person who who had been in ministry in Malaysia for three and a half years. So uh, in some ways we were just worshiping and literally persona non grata. So and, and and that's the reason why when 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 we even in the context when we moved to to Berkeley, we we're very glad that we found our community. Very quickly found our community and landed in a community that embraces as a family. Uh, we were there for a long time until uh, until I left to to go to to Drew Theological School to be the dean. And uh, uh, so that's, that's part of our involvement in the United Methodist Church. Mm. It just breaks my heart to even hear. Yeah. Um, 
And also as a first generation Asian American, are there parts of ministry and church from home that you missed in that season in some respects because you weren't getting getting that, you know, when you were worshiping in these predominantly white spaces? Be, because I was a, a pastor and an associate pastor there for, uh, for the, the, the three and a half years before we left. Mm -hmm. There were all sorts of ministry I was involved in. I was the, the, uh, the, the lead pastor of youth and young adult ministries. I was very involved in uh, uh, part of, a, of our Wesleyan tradition is cell groups. Hmm. We had many groups working together, functioning in that in the church, which, which had about a thousand members. Hmm. So every week, I was very involved in the different ministries. And the, um, the, the ministry of, of, of care and uh, uh, visitation is part of the tradition. And in, a, in an advanced society, technological world, uh, I think we have lost a lot of that. Mm-hmm. In some ways, because members are busy and, uh, and, 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 and pastors are no longer in the habit of doing that. We miss a lot of that, the, that, the, the, those kinds of connection. Yeah. Human connection. So, uh, so for, for, for for my years in uh, for my years in in Dallas and then in in Atlanta, uh, I don't believe any pastors ever made pastoral calls on us. So uh, that just that's that's I I think it 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 is one of those things that we are missing in the tradition already. Mm -hmm. So when, mm -hmm. when we talk about a ministry of care, uh, do we always wait for, for folks to, to, to turn to, to the church to ask for care? Mm -hmm. Or how do we rethink how we need to do that kind of active caring ministry? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. so, so I'm curious and we'll, we'll take a few, you know, a few steps down the journey, but I, you at some point, even with these experiences and even, you know, serving in a non-denominational space. And I know that you connect with a community, a Chinese Methodist community in Berkeley, but mm -hmm. what caused you to choose or what was the catalyst for choosing the United Methodist Church, which I know there's also this sense of being called into the United Methodist Church. <laughs> and so I hear that. but. What was it that said the United Methodist Church is a space that I need to serve, even recognizing that we're not really 
all that we could be. Well, in in many ways, it was about the community, mm-hmm. and uh, we we ended up with a a community that we could relate to, and uh, and and form some very deep friendships. And even to this day, well, because I've 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 been to different places, we are we are we are not in the congregation anymore, uh, some of the uh, friendships are still there. Yeah. A lot of those friendships are still there. Yeah. And uh, they are still very interested in what my, my, my daughters and my grandchildren are doing. And uh, we have kept in touch with a good number of them. Mm. So for me, being a United Methodist, I am in some ways, it's by default because of my Methodist roots. Yeah. Uh, as I've said, I, I, I could have chosen to, to remain a Presbyterian when I went to, when I went to, to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. But because I was invited into a community, in, into active participation in the life of a United Methodist congregation. We decided that it it was a place that we can settle in and and be a part of the community. Take me down that road from being a part of congregations to finding your place in the academy. Um, You said earlier that you moved to Drew theological. Um, mm-hmm. t- take me down that road in that transition. Well, before I get there, uh, when I when I began, even before I I I, I enter or the ordination process. Uh, I began to make myself available to, to, to participate in the life of not only the local church, but eventually the conference. And, and once I enter the, the, once I enter ordained ministry, I became as a, as a theological educator. Unlike a lot of theological educators, I decided that the life of the church and the life of the, uh, the the life of the local church, as well as the life of the annual conference, was something that I am willing to to devote my my time and energy. I started serving and chairing committees, uh, committee on uh, on on Christian unity and interreligious relations. I, I chaired a committee on race and religion and uh, make myself available as a resource to the board of ordained ministry. So I was very active in the life of the, uh, of the conference. And uh, it was out of that that I, I got ordained in 2002. 
In 2003, I was elected as a delegate to General Conference. My first General Conference was 2004. And it came out of... Uh, 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 the only way I can attribute that was to my active involvement in the life of the conference. Yeah. And I've been to every single general conference except in 2012. Uh, was it 2012 or 20? Uh, no, it, except in 2008. Okay. When because of my administrative uh, role at the, uh, at the at PSR that I declined nomination. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I have been at every general and jurisdictional conference. Wow. So even now moving on to Drew. <laughs> I uh, love it. Moving on to Drew was a call to lead a United Methodist institution. But I never sever, sever my ties with my, my annual conference and continue to be to make myself available to the annual conference would would fly back to, to do anything the annual conference uh, reached out to me to 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 work with them with so so that that, that for me is is part of extension ministry that I, I truly cherish as part of the United Methodist tradition what do you see as the impact um, and I'm moving ahead that we'll come back, obviously, but what have you seen as the impact of being in the academy on your personal ministry? In terms of my own personal ministry, I, I saw myself as a, a bridge between the church and the academy. And I have always been pushing for, for a closer relationship between the church and the academy. And this is where Bishop Talbot was very significant in my life. Mm -hmm. Because he appreciated the life of higher education and, and the academy, higher education, theological education, and uh, willing to, to, to support someone like myself uh, to leave me in, uh, in, in higher education and theological education all my life. It is that kind of appreciation Unfortunately, Derek, that is not always the case. Yeah, yeah. I have heard from, uh, from colleagues over and over again that as they were trying to get through the ordination process with the intention of continuing to serve God and to serve the church, in higher education, in theological education, their call is questioned. Mm -hmm. they, are, they, are, 
their, 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 their desire to continue in the in higher education and theological education is questioned as to why they even want to seek ordination. Hmm. As if the only way that God calls people is to put them in the local church. Yeah. Yeah. And I have heard horror stories, Derek. Mm -hmm. And it, it pained me every time I hear those stories because they do not have, they, they, they do not have a bishop or uh, a board of ordain ministry that see the importance of, of serving God and the church in the world. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so bridging the gap between church and academy has always been a, a deep commitment of mine. Mm. And uh, as a result of that, I have, I have served GBHEM. Mm -hmm. I have served the university senate. And, uh, and, and in all those roles, I'm always reminding the academy and the church that we need to continue to find a way to bridge the gap. And uh, because the, 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 the wider the gap is, the more, the wider the gap is, it reduces our, uh, it, com it complicates and reduces the impact of our mission in the church. So keep keep taking me on that journey. You're at Drew, and then you head over to specific Pacific School of Religion. No, I went oh. from Pacific School of Religion to Drew. Okay, okay. And then from Drew, I came to Claremont School of Theology to serve as its president. Wow. And oh. and how I, I think you're still kind of coming down off of that time as president of Claremont. Mm -hmm. um, any reflections on on that space that you were, which is, I would imagine, a different space mm -hmm. than than teaching and directly nurturing students. The the role of president, I, I imagine, yeah. is a, a different role. Um, any reflections from that time for you? Well, uh, In all my years, in uh, particularly in the in the last uh, 12, 13 years in uh, uh, in in administration in theological education, I have I have been involved in the in all the conversations about the crisis in our United Methodist Church because. The crisis in, in the church, the, the splintering that is happening, 20% uh, of, our, of, of our local churches disaffiliating, all that has an impact on, on theological education, on our preparation of leadership for the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
But we have always been at the forefront of addressing issues that divide us. Theological education has, has, has always, uh, for, for example, when uh, in, in the 60s, theological education was, was addressing racism. Uh, theological education was addressing sexism when, uh, when, when we were dealing with, with women in ordained ministry. And so it was. It, it should not be. It should not surprise anybody that that a lot of us in theological education, from it, from our grounding in uh, in biblical interpretation and our grounding in theological thinking, we have been at the forefront of this, and many of us have been at the forefront of advocating. For the church to change, yeah, yeah, and uh, I I saw myself in that role when I was when uh, when, when I was a, a delegate in uh, in twenty sixteen and twenty nineteen. I spoke at plenary at general conference. I took the church to task. I confronted the church with our homophobia. And, and that, uh, that is a role that I think theological education seminaries can continue to play because the kind of work that we do will continue to be grounded not only in in saying things that, that is comfortable or uncomfortable, but grounded in deep theological and biblical work. And that is how we want to train, gen, uh, continue to train generations of our students that they, 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 they do not just narrowly think about about the issues and get caught up with one side or another. And Derek, let me tell you my own experience of how I move in terms of dealing with human sexuality. Mm -hmm. As I say to you, I came from a, a very conservative evangelical background. And uh, when I was in Atlanta and, and started attending a United Methodist Church through the inv invitation of uh, a, a, another graduate uh, PhD student at that time. Uh, I had been part of, of those that were condemning queer people because of the biblical text, the so-called but those those texts. Yeah, yeah. But my own journey to rethink all that I was thinking and saying came out of my deep work in biblical interpretation. Hmm. When as a biblical scholar, I am confronted 
with the reality that I cannot ignore the context out of which those biblical texts were teaching. Mm-hmm. Well, those biblical texts were saying, I had to rethink all that I had thought before. Hmm. It is not so much that I know a lot of, uh, of, of, of uh, LGBTQIA plus people at that time. Hmm. Because my, my, my circle has, uh, had continued at that time to be, uh, to be within the evangelical people in the denomination. It was out of my own deep theological, biblical theological work. And it was out of that that I, I decided that I could no longer participate in that kind of a local congregation. And went to a Presbyterian church. Yeah. Because it was open and affirming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A church that had grappled with the issues. Mm-hmm. And a pastor that had been that, that, that had spoken very strongly against the stance of that denomination too. This was in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's not because I, I got to know a lot of gay friends. No, that came after. My own thinking has shifted. So I, people... Uh, people need to do, to do serious theological work, biblical theological work themselves. Jeffrey, I believe that um, a special session General Conference in 2019, where the traditional plan passed, was a significant moment in the life of our church. And I think most people would agree with me. Um, and, and in this podcast in particular, I've invited my guests to reflect on the personal impact of, of that, that session, but maybe even the impact beyond um, individuals to the greater connection and so I'm, I'm curious as to your response to the passage of the traditional plan. You were, you were in the room um, when it happened. But I, I'd also love to hear an academic perspective of maybe what was happening in the room in 2019. And, and, and how you thought about it from um, an institutional perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Derek, in a way, 2019 was not, was, was a, a, a big blow, a big defeat. But from my perspective, it was not ultimately that surprising about how, how deeply entrenched people's, people's thinking are. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
in fact at every at every general conference that i have been part of we have been fighting this we've been fighting about the direction of the church we have been fighting about uh, how this how human sexuality has has impacted the church i remember in 20, in 2004 my very first gen, general conference and uh, when uh, when when those par paragraphs that we were we, we have been trying to to get removed was was defeated again uh, I went back and, and told my colleagues that the progressives need to decide whether or not they can remain in the denomination. Mm. And uh, because in, tw in 2004, the moderates were aligned with, uh, with the, the traditionalists. Right. Yeah. People like uh, like Adam Hamilton and others, they have not changed their their, their thinking yet. Hmm. So the uh, the the center was aligned with the center was aligned with the with with the right. So the left, the progressives, was definitely in a minority. We are talking about the U.S. Right, right. And when I when I went back from the from from the general conference at annual conference, this is what I I say to 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 my my annual conference that it's probably time for us to leave. Hmm. And uh, I I remember vividly that I, I I used the metaphor that I do not want to do ministry with one hand tied behind my back. Mm. That is literally what, what the church, the general conference is doing to us. But over the next few uh, general conferences, we began to sh see the shift in the US church of the moderates, the center opening up and, and and begin to 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 grapple with the issue of human sexuality. When we get to 2019, there was a glimmer of hope that the one church plan have a chance to pass. We were all hoping for that. Yeah. And uh, uh, when 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 that went down, not by a huge margin, right? When that went down, it was it it, it impacted all of us to see that there is no desire on the part of the traditionalists to to give us. The, the some space to do the kind of ministry that we need to do. Mm -hmm. 
and in fact made it even harder for LGBTQIA folks to be ordained mm -hmm. and to make it more uh, more challenging on on the part of uh, of the progressives to to affirm the life and ministry of LGBTQIA folks. That for me was the, uh, the, 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 the bigger blow with the traditional plan. Without the traditional plan, at, at least we can, uh, we, we can argue that, that there may be some, some wiggle room in there. But the traditional plan made, made it all worse. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, I, I remember that at, at the conference, that was when I, I called out as, a, as a, an academician. I had to call out the hypocrisy mm -hmm. of the church. Mm -hmm. Because their interpretation of biblical text was a pick and choose on how they would they, 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 they want to interpret certain texts right and uh, uh, and and to grant contextuality to one issue but not to other issues mm -hmm. the, the issue that I, I, I pointed out was divorce. I was very specific that, that Jesus never affirmed divorce. Hmm. But the church has moved on from there because we were willing to grapple with societal changes. And, uh, and, uh, but the conservatives had also moved on with, with divorce. There, there are so many of the... Of, of, of conservatives, evangelicals that that are that 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 that, that have been involved in uh, in two three, three two three marriages, yeah. And, uh, as if marriage and divorce has nothing to do with sexuality, uh, and and only uh, only uh, same gender people are, are are having to deal with sexuality. Jesus never never separate those issues in terms of uh, of, of of marriage and divorce. And so I had, as an acad academician, to call out the hypocrisy. And we are never consistent with how we use text. And we are, we, we are still using text for our convenience. Another example, Derek. We are very much, quote-unquote, a peace church, even though we are not, we do not identify as our uh, ourselves like uh, like other traditions. Mm -hmm. But we have strong social principles on war. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. where do we ground those notions? We ground those notions in in thinking in 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 how the society. And the world has evolved. Mm -hmm. 
Do we ground that in, in the Bible necessarily? War is part of the biblical world. God is a warrior. God advocate, God advocate the destruction of enemies. Definitely in the Old Testament for sure. Absolutely in the mm -hmm. Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Even in Revelation. Yeah, yeah. The cosmic yeah. war mm -hmm. is a war where God is going to destroy all the enemies. Mm -hmm. So where do we growl our uh, our theology of war and peace, we are using the biblical text selectively, hmm. even on this issue. Yeah. And so, unless we are willing to, 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 to bring some consistency on how we deal with human present-day issues, mm -hmm and how we use the biblical text. People will continue to call out our hypocrisy as Christians. Hmm. Jeffrey, let me ask you this then. You know, we've experienced in the last couple of years, uh, disaffiliations, um, a lot more in my neck of the woods than I think um, on your side of, uh, the U.S. portion of the UMC. And you just made a, a, a statement even about divorce and, and I couldn't help but draw an interesting parallel of how disaffiliations feel to a lot of people um, as, a, as a kind of divorce, though definitely not the same. What are your feelings about this season of disaffiliations? Do, do you think this is is it better this way or should we have just hammered out another way to stay together? How do you, what do you think about the disaffiliations we're going through right now? When, when it comes to a point that one side of the, one side of the, the connection decided that they do not want to be with the rest of the connection. And uh, human sexuality is, is used as a wedge issue. Agreed. Ultimately, it's not about human sexuality. Hmm. And uh, it, it, it is about whether or not we are willing to grant one another space for the for for theological thinking and for faith practices, uh, as a progressive, I'm willing to grant the traditionalists their space to 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 worship the God in Jesus Christ in the way that is meaningful for them. But if they insist that I can only be a United Methodist, be a Christian, in the way that they define, then they are not willing to respect how I relate to God. That is the dividing line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, if, if they are not willing, then what they will end up doing is to continue to attack and, and, and try to destroy the other. And that is not, that will not be healthy. So, the disaffiliation, as painful as it is and will be, I think it is, it, it will allow the rest of us to recalibrate, refocus on what our mission needs to be. Allow us to be more authentic in our faith and theological thinking. And there will come a point in time where some of these congregations may end up returning. Hmm. The Episcopal Church went through this much earlier than us. Have you read lately? Oh, I have. I have. You yeah. have read lately that some mm. of these congregations are coming back. Coming back yeah. Those that were part of the North American Anglican Church mm -hmm. are coming back to the Episcopal Church. Because <laughs> as the congregation grow, they see that they, they can no longer align with the, 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 the theological perspectives Mm -hmm. The narrow theological perspectives. Yeah. So, 20 years from now, we may be seeing some of these shifts. And the mm -hmm. good thing is that in other parts of the world, there, there, there is some disaffiliation in, uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But there has been few disaffiliation in the continent of Africa where our denomination is growing. Right, right. As we've seen so far. As we have seen so far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even those bishops that were advocating for disaffiliation, some of those bishops are no longer even talking about it. In the Philippines... There have been some disaffiliations, but not entire annual conference. So there have been no single annual conference in the Philippines that have processed disaffiliation like what we see in, uh, in, in, in uh, I believe, it was it in Bulgaria? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and I am not... I, I don't think we will be seeing the kind of a huge disaffiliation in Africa. Hmm. We may lose a, a, a percentage, mm -hmm. but the percentage mm -hmm. is not going to, to be huge. Yeah. Hmm. And you have, you, you have a real, uh, relationships with, uh, with, with, with friends and colleagues in the continent of Africa. Yeah. I've been to Africa on a, on, on a good number of occasions. The symbol of United Methodism, the cross and the flame, mm -hmm. is a very powerful, significant symbol 
for Methodist there. Yeah. And so for a lot of them to think that they have to give up their identity symbolized by the cross and flame, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. So. Yeah. Jeffrey, and I'm, I'm wondering, you may not be able to, uh, in no way do I want you to speak to, for all, but I'll use this as an example. Um, it's interesting, as we see it now, there aren't a lot of African-American congregations that are disaffiliating which isn't to say that African-American congregations are, feel completely, um, what's the word, supported by the United Methodist Church. Um, we, we have still a lot of anti-racism work to do. Mm -hmm. There's a good amount of historical disenfranchisement mm -hmm. that needs to be dealt with, right? So. African-American congregation staying is not to say that they are happy. It's right. just that they're not leaving. Right. Do you sense a similar attitude or, pers or perspective from our Asian-American Pacific Islander congregations, particularly here in the U.S.? In many ways, those are, that there, there are a lot of par parallels there. And uh, uh, our, our ethnic Pacific, Pacific Islander and Asian churches that are staying does not mean that they are progressive churches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What it has meant to them is that the United Methodists can continue to be a home for them to, uh, to live out their faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, among the 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 I uh, first I have heard very few Pacific Islanders Pacific Islander churches leaving. Very very few. Mm -hmm. uh, there may be some some clergy that 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 may choose to 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 disaffiliate. But in California, in my annual conference, Cal Nevada, not a single Pacific Island, Islander church has disaffiliated. Mm. And uh, uh, similarly, in, uh, in Southern California, I haven't heard of any. Uh, there are a, a few Chinese churches that are disaffiliating. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but those are... Uh, uh, those are the number is not going to be huge either. Yeah. Uh, I haven't heard of any Japanese American church disaffiliating. Mm -hmm. uh, the the bigger number are Korean churches. Right. Right. And uh, in part because there are more Korean Korean churches than any of the ethnic groups now. Hmm. Uh, in in Cal in Cal Pacific California Pacific Conference, there are a few congregations that are that have voted to disaffiliate. 
and so uh, but there have not been any congregation so far that have been able to pay their part to take their property with them hmm. so so there will be some uh, membership uh, 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 reduction in uh, among the uh, Korean American churches yeah uh, whether or not all these congregations are going to be part of the GMC is is something that is yet uh, I, I, I'm still waiting to see mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, but by and large the Asian American uh, Asian the churches among the Asian American communities are going to, to to remain within the denomination. Nonetheless, as as you have put it, Derek, the question is how do we move forward? Yeah. And uh, uh, remember, we we need to acknowledge that within our denomination here in the U.S., white congregations are not growing. Mm -hmm. Ethnic congregations are the ones that are growing. Yeah. So when we, when we talk about, about uh, membership decline, we need to be more nuanced in terms of what we are talking about. Yeah. And so once we get through all this, this, uh, this affiliation, as we begin to, to, to refocus on mission, how our denomination here in the U.S. begin to, to, to work with ethnic churches, African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, Pacific Islander churches, so on and so forth. How we work to support ethnic churches it's going to be a test of who we say we are going to be. If we use the rhetoric of being a decolonial church, our denomination need to put the resources in those places, put the money where their mouth is. And, 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 uh, and, to, to strengthen the ethnic churches, help them to continue to grow. That for me is the future of our denomination here in the United States. We have other issues that, that we need to, to, to work with in terms of uh, how, we, how we recalibrate when uh, regionalization is, is passed and, uh, and, and how we work with how we, we, we work as a worldwide church. That is going to be important. The future. This coming general conference is only, can only be the beginning. But we will have a, a lot of work to do to live out what, we, what it means then to be a worldwide church after all the disaffiliation has happened. Yeah. Mm. Jeffrey, we will um, finally 
have General Conference 2020 in April and May of 2024. A lot on the table. Absolutely. What do you, what do you think that space needs to be about? We cannot, direct. we cannot pretend that it's going to be easy. There will be disruptive forces. And, uh, and this affiliation is, is only part of it. But there will still be forces within the denomination that will try to disrupt and try to hold back the rest of us from moving, moving forward. Uh, I have seen their, their, their rhetoric. And uh, uh, we cannot afford all of us from, from, any, uh, from any of our regions, cannot pretend that uh, with the, the disaffiliation already happening, we will have a, a different general conference. To a certain extent, perhaps, but to a, a, a greater extent, I, I hope that we are not so naive to go into, into this general conference thinking that, for example, regionalization will pass easily. There are forces who are going to disrupt that to stop us from passing regionalization, which will be the anchor of our denomination in its next manifestation. And so I want all of us to be ready to be in conversation with one another, to be in deep prayer and discernment together as we go into the general conference. We need to come together to, to determine what kind of church. The, 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 those of us who have decided that there is still something within our denomination that we can be a part of to move forward. So strong. Do you have hope for the United Methodist Church, Jeffrey? As I said to you back in 2004, mm -hmm. I was ready to pack my bag. <laughs> yeah. And, but over the, the last almost 20 years now, I have begun to, to, to see where we have moved. And uh, it has given me hope that we can, we can be the kind of, a, of church that, that we say we want to be. Mm -hmm. There is hope there, but it's going to, 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 to take all of us to decide that we are going to be respectful of one another. Hmm. Acknowledge our theological differences. Acknowledge that out of our theological differences, each of us will have, have our mission to fulfill, to fulfill the, the, the mission of the church in different ways mm -hmm. that God has called us to. To make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world cannot be reduced to only one way of doing. Ooh, 
Yeah. To make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world comes out of acknowledging our different contexts mm. and leave out our Christian discipleship in such a way that has authenticity, that has integrity, so that we can make disciples of every shape and form, of every ethnic group, every theological stripe, so that together we can continue to transform the world. Amen. That is what we need to focus on. Mm. Not thinking that because that, that there is only there's only one 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 specific way of making disciples. That 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 in some ways, if we think that, then we are reducing God to a very narrow perspective. Mm. We are narrowing God to to, to, to such a, a small divine reality that that can only be meaningful for, for one group of people, one perspective. Yeah. Jeffrey, I just feel like um, <laughs> I've just been given just an incredible amount of wisdom from sitting and listening to you, I'm so grateful. And I too, I'm, I'm with you. I, I do have hope for the United Methodist Church, not because I think that it's gonna be easy, but I think that the more we do this, listening to each other and learning from each other, listening for the, the godly wisdom that is sitting within the stories and the journeys and the, the, the interpretations that come from all of us at the table, I think that we have the ability to really be a very specific witness for Jesus in this world, mm -hmm. a, a witness that the world is waiting for. Derek, for, for me, it, it is about giving ourselves an opportunity to, to, to live out the kind of church that we have the potential to be. Mm. How many denominations has a commission on race and religion? Mm -hmm. How many denominations have a, a commission on, uh, on, on uh, women? Mm -hmm. The status and role of women. Status yeah. and, and role of women. The, the, the work ahead of us is how do we live even more fully into those commitments that we have made? Yeah. And it's, it needs to be global. Amen. Jeffrey Kwan, thank you so much for sharing today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Derek. I enjoy, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's awesome. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time. <laughs>